We left off a couple of evenings ago exploring uh, self-knowing in action, if you recall, relationship, all in the service of learning how to live. Uh, with this approach, living and practicing become the same thing. It's something that has to be learned. Uh, Self-knowing, review just a little bit, is that what happens in the active present. It's a clear seeing of, typically, your relationship to what's happening. And then it's over. It's not, doesn't become part of your story. I mean, it can be, but that's not the point. In that moment, when there's real awareness, you're free in that moment. You're not grasping or pushing away, and you're practicing how to be free, at least in the language of, of this approach to Dharma. Uh, what it isn't, some of what I'm saying is in response to some of the stuff that's come up in groups and notes, it isn't chronic introspection. We already know how to do that. You know, the furrowed brows trying to figure everything out, making lists if on the one hand I do this and on the other hand. Uh, it isn't uh, some kind of um, new form of narcissism, uh, although it can be. But self-knowing is meant to see that. Self-knowing has to do with the seeing. Uh, and it doesn't only happen on the cushion. Uh, my first Vipassana teacher... Uh, Anagarika Manindra, who taught here and taught a number of the, the teachers here, asked me why did I want to practice Vipassana. I said, I want to learn about myself. And he said, okay, sit down and take a look. As simple as that. Uh, that's true. But it doesn't end there. It's, it doesn't end with the cushion. And in fact, what we've been trying to do is to drive that point home that practice is not limited to a particular, it's not cushion mind. It's not an attachment to a certain place and a certain cushion. That's the only place that real insight work happens. It's an invaluable place, like this retreat, uh, or your sitting practice at home. But most of your life is, is left. So what do we do? And what was, <clears throat> uh, to contrast what it is not, it is not the story of my life. It's not trying to enrich that. Uh, starring me, starring you, with all the actors, the director, the camera, everyone is you. And uh, revising it. Uh, it isn't that. It's just now. It's just seeing now. And what was suggested is that this self-knowing go, can go on in any situation. And it, uh, it happens as you live. You can, if you pay attention, uh, you can get to know your relationship to the body and learn a lot about how to care for the body yourself. You listen to the body. It has its own intelligence. Sometimes it's gotten very damaged by living incorrectly, but that can be remedied. Uh, relationship to nature. If you go out into nature, you'll find out what your relationship to nature is. 
But I'm not telling you what it should be. I'm not saying go out and hug a tree. I'm not saying that. Rather, it's more find out what your relationship to a tree is. It's an attempt to bring more honesty into our life and actuality, just the way things actually are for us. That's our, the basic materials that we work with. Relationship to objects, to money, um, of course, most of all to yourself. And we left off where we were talking about relationship with persons, you recall. And that's a big subject, as you know, and one that we're keenly interested and not interested in. Um, And what was being suggested is that when you're in the presence of another, or let's say relationship is a mirror that teaches you about yourself, because when you're in the presence of another is a reaction, and that is showing you something about yourself in that moment. Um, That reaction typically has to do with me and mine. It's about me. And much of our life, it's conditioned. And much of our life is lived from that place, unexamined. I use the um, one way of, there's so many different ways to characterize what I'm talking about. And Dogen, uh, a Japanese master named Dogen, puts it, as I mentioned, to study Buddha Dharma or to learn Buddha Dharma is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be awakened by all things. Awakened it could also be read as um, verified, confirmed, authenticated. That is, we need life to show us that we're awake. Um, and what to, st- the study, to, to study the self or to learn the self, what that means is to become more intimate with yourself, more familiar. And that happens by spending time. How does your mind spend its day? Uh, And it's not that you have to stay inside and isolate yourself from people because the mind, the the ways of the self are revealed all day long. And it's very rich revelation when you come in the presence of another person. Now, when Dogen says to forget the self, it's not, he's not talking about some kind of amnesia that he's uh, encouraging. Uh, when, you, when you look very carefully and clearly and in a sustained way at what we call the self, it, it falls apart. It isn't what you think it is, underscore think. And what's left is what's left. And I, I don't want to... I'll, I'll give you a sense of that in a moment. Um, In a relationship, in any kind of relationship, uh, if you can genuinely bring this into practice, make it part of your practice. Now, it's implied in, in all the Buddhist teachings, particularly in the precepts, which have to do with uh, uh, right speech. Uh, you know, the five precepts, I think you all know, and they're very similar to, in many ways to the commandments that exist in different religions. And there, it's about ethical refinement. To begin with, it's giving us a standard or a direction, sort of the North Star, uh, how to live. Clearly, if you're killing, lying, misusing sexual energy, stealing, 
uh, and using intoxicants that cloud the mind, uh, how could that go anywhere that's uh, beneficial or helpful? Okay, and so let's say at the first, at first it might be external. We take on these precepts, and they can be really helpful. Where people, the reason the precepts exist is we do want to lie, steal, misuse sexual energy. <laughs> I mean, why else do they exist? We need all the help we can get. We do. Okay, so the help comes externally by taking these. Or maybe uh, sometimes you take it with a particular teacher, and if you really have good feelings for the teacher, then that can reinforce. It's, it's kind of a second parental uh, kind of thing. Then the, the other is uh, we've been conditioned that maybe we have what is called a superego. If you're brought up a certain way, you have internal restraint. These are pressures that come from outside and then from our conditioning inside. And then when the mind gets clear, more and more, uh, we, don't, we, abs- we don't do these things out of wisdom. It's not out of pressure. It's not out of the fact that I took the precepts or that I, the, uh, my priest, rabbi, minister uh, told me this or my parents taught me this. It's that we can see very, very clearly uh, the price that's paid for lying. If you pay attention, uh, it's not too far away. You can see that there's suffering in it. Even if you're not caught, there often is suffering. Okay. Um, and I, often it doesn't seem to go beyond that. What I've, this, my own observations, and I don't believe they're just mine, I spent eight years in Zen, I've spent a bit of time with Tibetan Buddhism, and I follow all of it. We're all kind of more and more in the same world with each other is there's been a lot of transgressions by people who are supposedly highly advanced, sometimes called masters. Uh, And so it got me to, uh, it's humbling, to understand the emperor doesn't have clothes on sometimes, and to look more carefully, and particularly about, we can't take anything for granted about ourselves and others. That's why the practice, it's taking responsibility for ourselves. Uh, I'd like to get to that aspect of teaching if we have time uh, a little bit later. But what I have found lacking is the training does not seem to include relationship, uh, particularly relationships, uh, uh, intimate relationships. Uh, because uh, Somehow that skipped. For example, I was, when I was in Zen, I was in Koan Zen for five years, very intense. And there were teachers all over the place, and they had, there are kind of standards that you pass. It's like um, obstacles. They're uh, collections of koans, uh, challenging uh, questions. To You don't answer them rationally. And there's the Blue Cliff Record, the Mumon Khan, the uh, Book of Serenity, and there are people who've passed every koan, and they come here and create an enormous no- amount of suffering. And so finally, it took me a while. I realized there's one koan that they didn't seem to be given in their curriculum. It's for the, they're mostly men. It's the lady koan. They, ne- <laughs> they didn't pass that one. And, <laughs> and sometimes it's the money koan. So that it doesn't seem so we have we, uh, and as lay people, 
Remember, these are mainly monks. It isn't so true in Theravadan Buddhism because it's very monastic, celibate. Uh, in Zen, there's a lot more wiggle room. <laughs> okay. uh, you've been on. Re- <laughs> you've been on, you've been in silence too long. Okay. Um, but here, here are we. Uh, we work. We raise families. We study. Um, we fall in love, we fall out of love. People we love die, we leave people, people leave us. We have a rich life. If this does, isn't taken seriously as an authentic and worthy part of practice, then why would we necessarily uh, master some of that? And I don't know if you ever master it, but I think it has to be, it's imperative for us as lay people. Uh, that we do take that on and that we see it as a very rich source of practice and liberation. It isn't just to be well-adjusted with your partner. That's great. You know, you fight less, you're more considerate, and so forth. That's, that's fine. But I think it can go well beyond that in, in making a, a profound contribution to, to liberation in the following way. Uh, one way to capture or get at the essence of what the Buddha was talking about is that finally it's about not attaching to anything as being me or mine. And we do an enormous amount of that. The real renunciation is to stop identifying with everything as being me and mine. It's not, you know, you can have one outfit and eat one meal and uh, all kinds of external limitations, and I think they may help some people. But to me, finally, there's only one renunciation that has the real power, and that's to renounce this tendency to identify with everything as being me or mine. Okay. In relationship, as you know, and certainly an intimate relationship, but not exclusively, stuff gets brought up, and it's all about me and mine. So if, you can, if we can all learn how to pay attention to our reactions in relationship... Uh, this is with, that, with bosses, children, it doesn't matter. Uh, what gets brought up is this sense of me. Test it, see if it's so. And as you improve your ability to do this, and you only do that by doing it, uh, and you, will, you won't do it unless you feel that it's really an important part of your practice. Um, I have a very good friend who has been highly... Um, highly decorated as a, a, in his Zen work, and yet has, uh, it's been a disaster for him in relationship. And one time, uh, he was just in despair, even though he has solved all these koans, uh, over what had happened. And we could, how could it be possible with all your work? That, and what we concluded is that the area, in his case, was man, the man-woman area. Uh, he really uh, had a lot of fear there, he really didn't, this, this, take it from me, this guy really practiced. But, but by that it meant lots of retreats, austerities, sincere, loved the practice. But when it came to that dimension in life, what we came up with was that uh, he didn't do it there. 
either out of fear or, and this was harder to hear for him and for myself, he really didn't value it as much as just sitting in, a, let's say, a three-month retreat or a seven-day session. Uh, you know, just the messiness of, of getting a house together, taking care of the children, going here, going there. And, you know, he, he, uh, he cared, but he didn't have that same value that this has, this has real Dharma value as when he would sit. That was special. And what Michael and I have been trying to do all week is to make everything special. Granted, and that of course includes sitting, and sitting is special in many ways, really special. But if we dip it in bronze and put it up on the mantle and make it stand for the whole thing, I think it'll backfire. I've seen it too many times. Okay, so uh, self-knowing in action, a lot of it can come from relationship. It happens here even in silence. Aren't you being affected by people in your presence? even if we don't speak to each other? In Koreans, then, they have a, a cute way of putting it. If you want to peel a whole bunch of potatoes, you can peel each one one at a time. Or else you can put them all in a basket and shake them, and they all rub up against each other and peel each other. Okay. So even in silence, we have reactions to each other. Approval, disapproval, uh, noticing. Uh, come on, I, I've, been on, I've done my retreats, too. No matter how holy you look, you know that sometimes you're uh, curious. Okay. Uh, but certainly when, when we all go home, please experiment with it. Bring it into your life. And uh, it's not anything that Michael and I have invented. It's just you're applying mindfulness to your reactions when you're in the presence of another. And at first it may feel a little stilted, but as you get onto it, it's smooth. It's like the tides going in and out. You're tending to someone else, maybe your child, and your child, you've told them a hundred times to clean up crumbs, and they don't. And you keep telling them one time, you just blow, you blow it. You just scream at them. And it isn't too helpful. And you feel the annoyance in there, and the, uh, also not being listened to, and the impatience, and so forth. And if, if you practice with that, that starts to weaken, and dissolve, and fall away. And then the next time the crumbs are left you may say the identical words because you have to tra- the child has to learn to clean up the crumbs. At least I think so. Okay. <laughs> so as I have to. And, but it's delivered from a different place, what we could call a response ra- rather than a reaction. Reactions are conditioned. Just pfft. response uh, comes out of a, a clearer mind. And uh, when the self, if there... It, as it gets deeper, you could say it's a moment of not-self, of no mind, or whatever language you like, uh, where out of that uh, empty space, it's clear what has to be said, clean up the crumbs, but the energy is so different that perhaps the child can hear. It gives the child an opportunity to break some new ground, but it's not limited to children. Try it. See what happens. I've done lots of it, and it's been very, very helpful. Um, in Zen, in Koan Zen, uh, Rinzai Zen in Japanese, a Kensho is, is considered the uh, first glimpse of awakening, a kind of an enlightenment experience. And Kensho means seeing into your true nature, which is what we're about to. We're all going in that direction. And so people think 
that when they get Kensho, they're going to see their true nature. And it's like their true nature will be out here. And like, there it is, my true nature. You know, far out. The seeing is your true nature. If those of you who knew this may make no sense whatsoever. And also, why would I want to trade in my story so rich and how hard-earned for just being the seeing? It's not that you see the true, the seeing is your true nature. Because as you do this practice, whatever it is you think you are, it's what you think you are. They're notions, they're representations, they're objectifications, whatever language. Like a photograph of you is not you. It represents you. And as you watch the mind, it's, it's full of notions about who you are. Typically, we latch on to them, and we believe in them. And we suffer immensely. We protect it, and we try to enhance it and uh, fix it and patch it up. Uh, but when you start watching, and it starts falling away, falling away, falling away, what's left is who you are. You, don't, you do not get shortchanged. Some of you worried. Trade that in, all of my rich story for what he's talking about. But the old mind, the one that's very invested in the story, that is the central character in the story, wrote it, directed it, filmed it, edited it, plays all the bit parts, uh, stuntman, uh, you know, uh, those, uh, all those roles, I don't know what they are. Grip, what's a grip? I don't know. <laughs> okay, you know, there's a whole bunch of roles, I don't know what they are. You know, I see them after every film. Okay. Uh, the old mind imagines what that will be, but that isn't what it will be. It's a relief. It's putting the burden down, dropping it. And the only way you can test to see if, if there's some truth in what's being said is, is by practicing, and you do get glimpses of it. It's not that you have to wait until some big explosion goes off. There are, there are moments, and you've, many of you here have already had them. Okay, so... Uh, I'd like to, um, there's so much that could be said about self-knowing. Uh, give you the beginnings of um, a teaching, a sutra, called the Kalama Sutra, a very, very important sutra. To me, one of the most important teachings of the Buddha. Uh, personally, if it were not for this teaching, had I not been introduced to it very early on, really early on, I don't think I would have gotten involved with all of this. Uh, it was that important for me. It may not be for you, but it's central to the Buddha's teaching. It's not just in the sutra. It turns up throughout the Buddha's teaching. In it, the Buddha, this will be a, just to give you the sense of it, because uh, how is one to live? Socrates' big question. And then Socrates says, a life unexamined is not a life worth living. That's a pretty strong statement. An unexamined life is not a life worth living. Um, it is harsh. It's hard. Another way of putting it is what makes us human is that we can reflect on living. As we live our life out, we can also be conscious of what's happening. Uh, it's a unique capacity that we have. Sometimes perhaps we see it as a curse because we can also, everyone, animals know they're going to die too, or I don't know if they know it, some of you may know more than I do about animals. 
but uh, we have the capacity as, as we're a, we know what's going to happen even long periods of time before it happens. And so we have to deal with that. But at any rate, this is all about an examined life. Dogen puts it positively. What's uniquely human is to know the self, to come to know yourself. Out of that flow all the benefits. The suffering comes from ignorance. This is the Buddha's teaching. Okay, in the Kalama Sutra, the poor Kalamas, they're very positive people, very uh, fortunate, have resources, educated, enough to eat, all of that. And the Buddha comes through. It sounds a bit like Cambridge, where I live. (laughs) Harvard Square, in fact. In other words, everyone comes through there, and they're bewildered. The Tibetans come through with their, not then, you know, now. And uh, the Theravadans and Zen, and there's how many different diets and how many, you know, uh, 17 kinds of acupuncture and 50 kinds of yoga and smiling faces on every bulletin board telling you this is, if you do this, it's the shortest, best, onlyest way. Uh, they're confused. Now, here comes the Buddha, another one. Here's what the Buddha says. So they're confused and they're concerned about whether the Buddha's going to do that too, and he doesn't. And he says, uh, he understands their plight. And he says, so as I said, Kalamas, don't go by reports, by legends, by traditions, by scripture, by logical conjecture, by inference, by analogies, by agreement, through pondering views, by probability, or by the thought, this contemplative is our teacher. When you know for yourself, when you know for yourself, that these qualities are unskillful, these qualities are blameworthy, these qualities are criticized by the wise. Important point. These qualities, when undertaken and carried out, lead to harm and to suffering, and you should abandon them. And then he turns it around. Now, Kalamas, don't go by reports, by legends, by traditions, by scripture, by logical conjecture, by inference, by analogies, by agreement, through pondering views, by probability, or by the thought, this contemplative is our teacher. When you know for yourselves that these qualities are skillful, these qualities are blameless, these qualities are praised by the wise, these qualities, when undertaken and carried out, lead to welfare and to happiness, then you should enter and remain in them. He's giving us some guidelines as to how to live. Now, That sutra uh, has been sometimes, to me, it's a corrective of two extremes. On the one, uh, for me, from my point of view, one extreme is um, a totally authoritarian approach to spiritual life. It says in the book, uh, it's orthodoxy at its worst. Uh, And even if it sounds idiotic and stupid, it says in the book. Uh, And there's no real concern. As long as you're supposed to have faith, and believe, and there's no concern about what you think or what your experience is. You just do it. The other extreme is kind of the hippie credo, just follow my heart, man. (laughs) And uh, what's the quality of that heart that you're finding? Not only that, which heart? There's so many different voices in there, all competing for the microphone. (laughs) Which one? Well, one teacher helped me, and he said, follow the one that decided to practice. Of course, he was a Buddhist. 
You know, I, I don't think that would go over to just the average person. Um, so what I'm uh, trying to say is that on the one extreme, I couldn't be doing any of the, anything spiritual. I was brought up in a, a pretty crazy way, uh, loving, lots of love. But uh, on my father's side, 14 generations of rabbis, my grandfather turned on it and became disillusioned, uh, left the rabbinate, came to the United States, brought his family here, opened up a Hebrew printing shop, and uh, very, very uh, cynical about religion. My father was uh, more extreme than my grandfather and became a Marxist. And it might as well have remained orthodox because it's the same thing. But the, my mother's side, uh, kind of fiddler on the roof, Jewish village. <laughs> Seriously, my, my mother says, fiddler on the roof is straight ethnography. That's exactly what our town was like. Okay. But they're pious, but you know, very popular, softer, with lots of room for humor and all that. And so I went through seven years of, of Hebrew school, Orthodox Hebrew school. My father told me it's all a bunch of nonsense, but go for your mother and your grandparents. And it was torture, because I believed my father. And, uh, when, and he said, when you get your bar mitzvah, you're, you're free. You know, and you decide what you want to do. So at 13, I had my bar mitzvah. My father was the first person, I think, in, in thousands of years of Jewish history who paid the rabbi not to give a talk. <laughs> I'm serious. Now you have compassion for me. You can see, you can see why I turned out like this. <laughs> I was in the room, and, he, and he, he, whatever the fee was, he gave the rabbi money before, and he said, Rabbi, Please, here it is. Don't give a talk. Please. <laughs> and the rabbi gave a talk anyway. <laughs> My father was, he was ready to explode. And, he, and the rabbi said, look, Mr. Rosenberg, I had to earn my money. I had to give a talk, you know. Uh, so uh, authoritarianism or no, and my father brought me up to, that I could question and doubt, including him. Um, so when I discovered that it wasn't just another belief system that you had to adhere to, and if you, if you were a believer, you're okay, and if you're a non-believer, you know what can happen sometimes. Yeah. Okay. Um, what the Kalama Sutra is saying, as I hear it, and I'm not, I don't think I'm alone in this, it's a very, very balanced approach. Uh, first of all, it's putting the, finally, the final responsibility is in your hands. Be a lamp unto yourself. Be a refuge unto yourself. However, it's not saying to uh, discard the wisdom that exists in the world. So, for example, these are teachings. This retreat didn't just grow out of Michael and I, you know, fantasy in some cafe somewhere. <laughs> you know, we've been studying it and practicing it for a long time. And one way in which the sutras become very alive, for me they have this way, is by studying a sutra and then testing it in your life. Studying a sutra back and forth, the words start to become alive rather than just shoulds. But what the Buddha is saying, and now I'm going a bit beyond that sutra because it's in other teachings, is if, if something is skillful, then pursue it. If it's unskillful, then don't do it. Skillful 
and unskillful. I'll make that a little bit more clear in a moment. Uh, but he, he, there is room for respect for teachers. There is room for respect for scriptures. There's room, it's not, for example, logic, conjecture. It's not saying that illogic or just the stupid thinking is to replace logic. It's not to give absolute authority to anyone over and above your, yourself. Or as Lin Chi puts it, don't put anyone's head higher than your own. Okay. And as you go through them, uh, some, some of the things, in this teaching you can doubt. And so it's a balance between uh, the, the wisdom, you know, I'm limiting it to Buddhist wisdom right now. So there's some value in studying these teachings. It's, knowledge is not uh, it, worthless, to put it mildly. It's extremely helpful, but if it's only knowledge, it's a barrier to waking up. You can, I don't think you can think your way to what I'm talking about, or what, every, what the Buddha is talking about. You can do it, good luck. Don't think so. Uh, and yet, some verbal teachings or people who come as teachers, they can be very helpful. It can be very helpful as guidance, as guidelines, uh, giving us direction, uh, giving us options that we may never have thought about on our own, but then testing it with our life. For example, uh, I'll be personal. Um, there are things in the Buddhist teaching that uh, I don't know. Everyone, you know, more and more I hear people speak about rebirth as if it's a proven fact. Great, all right. You, uh, uh, I don't know. They said, well, the Dalai Lama, he says there's rebirth. There is, and he very convinced that, yeah, he was also born into Tibetan Buddhist culture. And it's as obvious to him as the world was flat to people who were born into that world. I don't know. I'm, it's not that I don't, I don't know, is what I'm saying. And I've, I've spoken to teachers, and... I'm not thrown out because of that. I'm open to it being true. But so many of the teachings that have come to me, I've been able to, I have been able to test. And they have come through for me. So I've gone further. I can't test this one. Now, maybe some of you have deep psychic abilities and you say, oh, you've seen your past lives. And if you, I hope that's true. I hope it's not just some big fantasy and delusion. I don't know. Now, the Buddha, even at the time of the Buddha, there are people who doubted, and he said, that's fine. He was very much in favor of tolerance. For example, uh, he said, if other teachers criticize me, don't get all upset. Listen to what they're saying. There may be some intelligence in it. How can you ever learn if, you're not, if you get all emotional and don't listen? Sometimes criticism, uh, finding faults with the Buddha, or your, it's a little bit like yourself. If a friend of yours or anyone in your life criticizes you, take it seriously. There may be some truth in it. You know, we get notes, and some of the notes that come back over years of teaching are not that complimentary. <laughs> okay. And some of them sound really off the wall and crazy, but I've learned that even if, it, even if it does seem that way, to pause and read it more carefully. And very often, there's a granule of truth in it, even if it sounds, uh, uh, and it's been helpful. Um, so, uh, so the Buddha is encouraging us um, to, to be able to accept criticism, uh, to work with it, uh, to accept uh, all kinds of things. Uh, for example, 
if you say that there is no rebirth. You, you just don't know, as I did. At the time of the Buddha, people said that as well. Uh, because rebirth is very tied to karma. As you probably you all know, it's a very popular usage. If you do good things, you get a good rebirth. You do bad things, you get a rotten rebirth. Okay? And they're saying, what rebirth? I, you know, they said, fine, let's assume there is no such thing as rebirth. Uh, then if you're behaving in a, in a skillful way, then the quality of this life is going to improve. If it turns out that there also are other lives, then you have a bonus that's coming that you didn't know about. <laughs> okay. So, uh, for example, uh, in many religions, the role of women is atrocious. Or if you read some of the ancient scriptures, the punishments for people, uh, if we were to be literal about that. Now, I think we've changed. In this country, some of you don't realize that there's a tradition that's very ancient. It's not just uh, Judeo-Christian and uh, Islamic. and all. There are many religions that are ancient, and some of the teachings in them, they may have been useful at some point, or that's the way people saw things. But I couldn't possibly live that way now. One of the first, in the first week or two at, at Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, a woman got up, I was giving a little Dharma talk like this, and she said, um, she just went up, she recited, she knew the history of Buddhism and all the ways in which women were treated. Nuns were second class, you know, nothing, you already all know this. And she wanted to go over that, can we go over all that? And my own feeling was, because many of us, people who started IMS and other, we had already been through this and we decided to leave that baggage behind. Uh, and I said, sure, we could spend our whole life reviewing the history of injustice in Asia, or we can start fresh right now. Look around. Women are here. There's going to be a, a woman teacher here soon. Every, you know, let's just, we don't have, let's not spend our time in the past seeing how awful things were then when we can, it's something we can correct right away. So there's room for that. Or some, I read some of the suttas, I don't connect with it. Fine, I've had teachers say, just let it go. Now, the, the, the crucial dimensions of the Buddhist teaching, to me, are unavoidable, the Four Noble Truths. They're so obviously sensible and sane that there is suffering, there's a cause, there's an end to it, psychological suffering. And that end comes about through the practice. The practice is ethical refinement, it's what we're doing here, concentrating the mind so that it's steady, strong, um, and reliable and clear, and then insight, wisdom, which grows out of a mind like that. Direct insight from, this, from the seeing. So now we get to what is skillful. Oops. <laughs> yeah. No bad jokes about Michael tonight. I, I used that one up already. Um, the Buddha is questioned by his, uh, has an, a famous exchange with his son, Rahula. And with, uh, just one part of it is, is really quite relevant for us now. Um, the Buddha teaches his son that before you, before you act, reflect, is what you're about to say or do is it skillful in the sense of is it beneficial for you and for others? If it is, then, then say it or do it. 
if in reflecting, this is, this is, this is a skillful use of the future, if uh, you, you conclude that it is beneficial and you do it, and then in the process of doing it, like in midstream, you realize it isn't. You thought it would be, but it isn't. Then cut it off. If you have to apologize, retract it. If uh, you conclude that it is beneficial and you do it, and it seems beneficial, even after it's over, sometimes reflect back. Uh, and, well, I thought it was beneficial, but now that I look back, uh, I don't know. It, it looks like it wasn't. I, I, I was, my judgment was off. It wasn't really skillful. It was harmful. It hurt people. And in fact, it even hurt me. Then what the Buddha suggests is, if you have remorse, that's fine. Use it to learn. Learn the lesson and then move on. Don't, keep, don't use it. It's not a guilt trip. Okay. Now, uh, that sounds helpful, doesn't it? In fact, you can use it for all kinds of things. Um, just simple things. Test the breath. We, we've been saying breath awareness is, for those of you especially, we have some fairly new people here. And you've read books, and everyone's telling you breath awareness, anapanasati. It's uh, the Buddha attained enlightenment doing anapanasati. That's one, what I've heard. Um, sounds good, very convincing. Books written well, talks and so forth. Here's where, where wisdom comes in of others. Personally, on my own, would I have ever thought that there is so much benefit that can come from simply attending to an in-and-out breath more and more. Uh, and if you knew, you may not fully see it yet, but some of you here do know what I'm talking about. I could have spent my whole life, it never would have occurred to me as a way to bring a certain kind of rather profound happiness into my life. Very useful. I learned it because there were some wise people told me, try this, this might help you live. Okay. But in this sutra, the Buddha is saying is, test it. Is it skillful? Okay, it has proven skillful for me. It's beneficial. It helps me tremendously. And because it helps me, uh, it, it helps my wife. It helps Michael. <laughs> you know, <laughs> at least sometimes. Yeah, okay. Uh, Fine. Then there are others like there's a, a, a profound sutra on psychological time. It's the one that really gets at uh, being in the present moment. On my own, I was too busy being enveloped in an imaginary future and a past that was over with. And suddenly I'm, I'm, there's a sutra that's telling me how, how much that brings suffering. So I started to examine my mind and how it relates. This is self-knowing. What's my relationship to psychological time? Not clock time. We all need, you know, to coordinate social life. And I started to see uh, how cut off I was, that I was living in, a, in a, a virtual world, not a real one, much of the time, and how I preferred it because it was safe. Er, it's not really safe. Okay, so what I'm trying to say is there's room for the wise, and even in the Buddha's teaching, respect is fine, but what the Buddha is getting at is this kind of blind, uh, unexamined obedience to authorities. I'm, I'm taking teachers now. There are scriptures, teacher. The teacher's one is a very, very big one in my opinion. 
Um, it's one that I've spent a lot of time understanding from both sides as a student and being in this role. And it's not just teacher-student. It's a, uh, we humans have to be very, very careful uh, because it looks we all talk about freedom and then it seems that we're also terrified of it when it comes down to real freedom, inner freedom. There's a, a book written many years ago by Eric Fromm called Escape from Freedom, which is a beautiful documentation. It, it, of course, it's stimulated by what happened in Nazi Germany. How could an educated population, so intelligent, with so much culture, uh, fall in love with a madman, someone insane? But he did. The need was so great to be led, to have someone to be to tell them what to do. This practice is for adults. Sorry if you, if you want to be told what to do. It's for grown-ups. Uh, many years ago, when Krishnamurti was still alive, it was both hilarious and, the more I have reflected on it, beautiful. He gave a talk, and then there was question and answer after it, and a woman got up who I'd seen at many of the gatherings and talks, and she said, Krishnaji, I've been listening to you for 15 years. He says, I, now I think I understand what you've been saying. You've been saying that you cannot help me at all. <laughs> and then he, without, without missing a breath, he said, absolutely correct. Now, that's a bit of an extreme, because otherwise, what are we doing here? <laughs> what, are we cheerleaders? I think we are. <laughs> Follow the breath. <laughs> no, but like any human beings, not just teachers, people can be very, very helpful. And I've had teachers who I am I'm as indebted to as I am to my parents, and I had two loving parents. It's more, but the really good ones didn't try to just make me and clone me. They really wanted me to find my own way, my own voice, and they pointed in the right direction, and this is the direction, to you. Finally, and that's the hallmark of Buddha Dharma, is that the suffering and the truth is all in you. Now, you hear teaching, uh, which is often in a very facile way misunderstood. If you see the Buddha on a, a mountain path, kill him. If you ever heard that, you see the Buddha kill him. And people think they understand that. Uh, it's a very advanced notion. Uh, what it's trying to say is, when you're ready for it, even the teachings of the, and the Buddha says it, it says the teachings are just a raft to get you to the other shore, that's all. It's, it's not absolutely true. So he didn't have the problem. And it's the conceptual Buddha in our head that uh, we are subordinated to. Well, that's big in this in, in, in Buddha Dharma. Now, can you imagine uh, the Pope saying, if you see Jesus, kill him? <laughs> I don't think so. If you see Mohammed on the road, kill him? Well, well I better watch out. <laughs> Pray for me, yeah. Okay. Uh, here's one teacher who did me a very, very great turn, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. So it's this balance between there is help in the world. We're not just alone, but finally, how can you get to know yourself? And 
How can anyone do that for you? Can anyone really free you? You can't do it for your own children, for your own lovers, for your own partners, for the people you love the most. They have to do it. You have to do it. It's just true. Many years ago, uh, I was a professor, and the last few years I started to realize that I, had, I didn't know much about Buddhism. or anything. I had a real yearning for all this, we used to call it consciousness. It grew out of the drugs, you know. Okay. <laughs> uh, and I, it took me a while, but I finally got up the nerve. I decided I wanted to leave the university so I could do these kinds of things full time. I had no idea how I'd support myself or whatever. Uh, and it made no sense rationally. It drove my family crazy. Um, and I shared this with a, a teacher I was studying with at the time named Chinmayananda. He was it's not, not a Buddhist teacher. He taught Vedanta, uh, a, a very uh, an extraordinary uh, expression of, uh, of Hinduism where they study a lot of studying of texts, Upanishads, the Gita, and so forth. He uh, had been a, uh, a famous journalist in India and then was imprisoned during the uprising against the British for seven years, and during his imprisonment, he said well, it was the best thing that ever happened to him. He just kept meditating, and he came out. Uh, well, he, he was a pretty far-out man, and uh, he became a monk and um, very, very well-known and very, very helpful. And he would come to MIT many times a year, and many of us spent time with him. At any rate, I got to know him, and... Um, Finally, the day came where I left the university, and a friend of mine told him that. And so I get this letter out of nowhere from Chinmayananda. In other words, he knew that I must have been terrified. <laughs> said, I just felt that I must write and contact you and remind... This is 1973. I just felt that I must write and contact you and remind you that all that is happening around us and within us are measured and very strictly calculated doses of treatment, in quotes, for our spiritual growth. A true yogi is never upset by anything. He or she waits and with alert attention watches the happenings in an attitude of cheerful abandon. Uh, it's another way, they call it witnessing. It's another practice that's similar to mindfulness. Sometimes when we say, when we give you choices, when we say, enjoy the show. Now, to begin with, you can't do it. You believe in your stuff, don't you? So much. The thought comes in, you're a jerk. Yes, I am. I'm a jerk. <laughs> then you have to come into and am I a jerk? No, you're not a jerk. You know, you're not a jerk. Uh, there comes a point where you realize these are just notions, thoughts, images. They're not as real as you thought. And you start, you start to see through them. And they lose their power. And, of course, that's a big step in helping you on, uh, move inside, so to speak. Um, at any rate, that letter came at a time when I couldn't have needed it more. And so I, I'm not advocating some kind of break-loose rebel against all authority, but don't check your intelligence at the door. Uh, maintain your own self-respect, your own dignity, your own intelligence. And... Whatever level, let's say, in this Kalama Sutra is saying, if it's skillful, do it. If it's not skillful, don't do it. Our judgment as to what is skillful and what isn't is pretty 
uh, faulty at first. We do, but you have to do the best you can. You can't t- wait until your mind is radiant and clear and wise, totally. You can't. So you do the best you can, and that's, what, that's par- an integral part of learning how to live. You start to learn about the consequences of what you think is good, and you find it isn't, or it is. And uh, there's a dynamic there. As the mind gets clearer through practice, your judgment improves. And do you see what I'm getting at? Uh, so um, that if you can keep that balance in mind, I think that will protect you. Uh, understand, if you see, examine your relationship to your teachers. Are you expecting them to really do it for you? Are you afraid to really uh, take responsibility for your own happiness, your own unhappiness, perhaps to begin with, more the the latter? Uh, If so, that's what you practice with. It's not fatal. It's just uh, that self-knowing. You're seeing where you're starting, and your starting point is maybe you are rather dependent, and you really do want people to tell you what to do. There is wisdom in the world, we can make use of it, but finally, we have to test it in the fire of our own life. And that's what I think the heart of this sutra is. Okay, can we have a few moments of silence? May we all continue to look into ourselves. May we see things exactly as they are. And may such clear, direct seeing free us. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.